Well, greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Industries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullet. You can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube. You can search for and subscribe uh, to the channel there. Now, you can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Logical Belief. Both the audio and video can be found at our website, just right there on the uh, far right of the top menu. Just click on Podcast. Uh, you can find the previous episodes there, both the audio and the video. So um, if you want to send me a word of encouragement uh, or you have a question, um, that you want to have answered on the air, you can just drop those or send those to jason at logicalbelief.org. Um, if you have any complaints um, or any th- sort of hate mail or anything, you can send all those to info at joelosteen.com. Alrighty, well, uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, today we are going to resume our series on the Anabaptists, and I have in the studio uh, with us today. Kevin Wagler, uh, but before we jump into that, uh, let's hear um, a short clip here from Striving for Eternity. Ohio Fire is coming to Columbus, Ohio, April 8th and 9th. Hosted by Striving for Eternity Ministries, Ohio Fire will encourage and train Christians to mature in their faith and share the gospel with the lost. Hear from Phil Johnson from Grace to You and Dr. Thomas White, president of Cedarville University. And after the conference, you'll have a chance to hit the streets of Columbus with trained team leaders. Ohio Fire, April 8th and 9th. For details and to register, go to ohiofire.org. Alrighty, well check that conference out if that is something that interests you. And as I mentioned uh, last week, if any of you want to send me to the Ohio Fire Conference, feel free to drop me an email. I will uh, send you my address and you can send your checks and money orders to that address and I would really appreciate that. So um, as you can see here, let's switch the screens. You can see that uh, Kevin is in our studio today. Um, he's back uh, joining us again. We're going to be talking about, as I mentioned, uh, the Anabaptists. Uh, before I jump into that and I forget, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Nick Summers, contributed an article to the website entitled The Outcome of the Wicked. Um, it's an article that deals with uh, <clears throat> the issue of the eternality of of God's judgment against sinners who have not placed their faith and trust in Christ, the eternality of hell, uh, versus um, uh, some of the views out there like annihilationism and so forth. Uh, so go ahead and check that article out. Uh, it's a it's a good resource there for you if you are interested. So um, let me go ahead and transition the screen here so you can see Kevin. Um, so... <clears throat> We did do an episode, uh, I think it was like three weeks ago, Kevin, I think, uh, on the Anabaptists. And uh, we did have some issue. I had some, some of you guys did contact me and let me know there was some issues with the audio uh, not being correct. So I made some changes to the audio and re-uploaded the uh, video and also the actual podcast file. So uh, hopefully we won't have those issues with the audio today. Um, but uh, so... Uh, Last uh, the last episode we had with uh, Kevin, uh, I gave him a short opportunity to give his uh, testimony, but uh, I just want Kevin to just kind of briefly again just kind of introduce himself and just uh, for those of you that didn't listen to the previous episode, uh, that you can um, just kind of get a background and know uh, where Kevin is from. Uh, I met Kevin uh, about 
months, uh, I think about three years ago, um, we met, uh, we were both, uh, we both attended a Calvary Chapel here in Sarasota, Florida, where we originally met. So uh, just tell us, uh, Kevin, a little bit uh, briefly about, uh, just a little bit about yourself. <laughs> yes, uh, I was uh, born and raised Amish. Okay. And uh, Which is the reason why you actually want to have this discussion. I mean, both yes, of us. Yes, that's, for, that's the for that reason. reason. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, I was uh, born again. Well, it was what it would be four years ago now, not yeah, yeah, by a sovereign yeah. act of God, right? Yes, <laughs> by a sovereign, gracious act of God, Kevin was born again. Yes, I was definitely not before. seeking the Lord. So. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. The we uh, we met there at Calvary Chapel, and uh, Jason has been a real help in my my growth and I thank him for that. And well, uh, I think it's been mutual, um, yeah. both ways. So we both, uh, have, I think we mentioned it last week, but, um, uh, we both, uh, go to breakfast usually every Wednesday morning at Bob Evans. So as I mentioned, uh, the last episode, uh, if any of that wacky theology, if you wonder where that comes from, that's probably a bit of undercooked potato or something like that. Yeah, from Bob, Bob Evans, Bob <laughs> Evans theology. Yeah. Yeah, we have uh we have a few other gentlemen that join us every once in a while, but um uh, so that's 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 us in a nutshell. Um we uh uh both of us go to the same Reformed Baptist church today, um uh here in Sarasota. Um or as our elder says, he prefers to call it Covenantal Baptist Church, but uh <laughs> he doesn't know if he likes the term reformed, but uh, we do hold to the London Baptist uh Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. So that is where we currently attend. So uh, that gives a little bit of background to uh, Kevin and I. So we wanted to get back into the discussion about the Anabaptists. And this is something that Kevin has done a lot of study on and has done a lot of reading on. Um, because uh, him, just like myself, you know, I have a background from the Mennonites. My parents actually came from the Amish. Uh, but I personally grew up Mennonite. Kevin grew up Amish, um, and so we both have a background with uh, the groups that would refer to themselves as Anabaptists, and so both of us have uh, equally have concerns for um, for those of our family and friends that are still uh, within the Anabaptist community, and we just wanted to uh, to provide some material out there on the internet that's just it's devoid right now uh of of a lot of good modern day material dealing with a lot of the issues that exist in anabaptism did you have something you wanted to say on that well yes and it's just not the amish and the mennonite even today the have a lot of the the baptists writing you know revisionist history and and uh i know it was it was really I couldn't believe it when I started studying it, just the, the papers that were written, you know, Baptists, you know, claiming, you know, that's where our heritage comes from. And yeah, as we were talking earlier, you know, in the first London Baptist Confession, I mean, it was a direct statement, you know, that we're not part of the, the Anabaptists, so. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, there's a lot of that. And I think, you know, as I've been studying <clears throat> Anabaptist history and, and studying some of these early radical reformers, as we refer to them as, um, 
a, a lot of the beliefs and claims that a lot of the early radical reformers in the Anabaptists had is very, very similar to the theology of of modern day, even we could even say Protestantism uh, or the modern evangelical church. A lot of the things that the reformers dealt with, we're dealing with again, but we're not necessarily dealing with it with groups that would necessarily call themselves Anabaptists. But what I'm seeing more and more of is a lot of uh, modern day evangelical churches going back and and you see that they discover these Anabaptist people and they go, well, that's what we believe, too. And and they and they will credit a lot of the early and the Anabaptists during the time of the Reformation for being the source of some of the things that modern day and I would even say like postmodern Christianity uh, would even hold to any thoughts on that well yes I mean they're like I said you know the revisionist history so they're going back and and just pulling parts and pieces of of everything that was written and I mean it's really easy to do to to take stuff out of context and uh you know and pull it apart and like if you read back through you know you'll see the you know, separation of church and state, you know, the 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 big deal the Anabaptists made, you know, separation of church and state. But if you know, if you look into I mean, that's we would completely agree with that. But if you look into what did the Anabaptists mean by that? Well you see mm-hmm. two radically different interpretations of, of how that worked out and Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you had mentioned uh, in the last podcast that what we as Protestants today, and actually I, and when I say Protestants, I'm talking about Protestants of conviction. What we as Protestants today would hold to as separation of church and state is much, much closer to the way the magisterial reformers, Calvin and Luther and Zwingli, looked at the separation of church and state. And while we use that term, and they didn't necessarily use that term, while we use that term, we're much closer to the Baptists today that hold to separation of church and state are holding closer to the view of church and state that the magisterial reformers held to and not what the actual Anabaptists held to, who were the ones that actually uh, promoted the term separation of church and state. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the the, the thing you find, you know, today we, we would use the, the term separation of church and state but uh, the way we would live that out is l- a lot closer to that of of the reformers than what the actual Anabaptists. Yeah, and you know, for for us as Americans, when it comes to the separation of church and state, what we mean by that is not that the church cannot have any involvement in the state, um, that we as Christians cannot hold positions of government and that we can't be things like police officers and judges and and senators and congressmen that's that's not the way that we look at separation of church and state but that's the way the anabaptists looked at it and that's the way that the modern day anabaptist groups like the mennonites um the hutterites the amish would look at the state they hold the state as being evil and not being something that um, 
if you're a good Anabaptist that you should be a part of at all. And so we don't owe our view of separation of church and state to the Anabaptists at all. Not in the least. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, that was uh, something we talked about last week. So we wanted to get a little bit into uh, some of the early Anabaptist radical reformers uh, in in the Austria, in Zurich, Switzerland, and German areas. Uh, we wanted to get into a few of them, and I think Kevin had some... Uh, uh, there was one of the early uh, Anabaptists, and he's really known kind of as the theologian of the radical reformers, and that is uh, Balthasar Hubmayer. Um, he actually, uh, uh, most Anabaptists are viewed as pacifists or as, and, and, I, and I always want to properly represent those groups that we discuss, so there are Anabaptists today that they would say that they're not pacifists, but would say that they're non-resistant. So I want to hold that distinction. Uh, the pacifist Anabaptists would say that, um, that, that they try to, through political means, enforce um, a method of peace even upon the government in the way that it does things. That's, that's historical pacifism, whereas non-resistance... Uh, does not oppose the government in any way um, and uh, simply uh, does not believe that uh, we should, as Christians, uh, even engage in what we would say is a just war or to hold any sort of um, a magisterial position where we can be like police officers and enforce the law and things like that. Uh, they would... They, so we want to make sure that we do clarify that distinction between the the pacifists uh, within the Anabaptist movement and those that are non-resistant. So we don't want to misrepresent that. But um, uh, Balthasar Hubmayer was um, he I and I'll let Kevin kind of fill in with this, but he he kind of existed kind of between the because you had you did have the Anabaptists like the Munsterites that followed Thomas Munster that were uh, inc actually incredibly violent. They were definitely not pacifists. And then you had the, the non-resistant and pacifistic types. Uh, and then you had uh, Balthasar and you had Hubmayer, uh, who kind of fell in the middle there a little bit. Yeah, he was he was in between. between the, and, like, I guess you would say he was he was closer to where we're at today with... with with the whole idea of non-resistance or the the Munster rights, but uh, I mean, he was he was the theologian of the Anabaptists. I mean, he did he got his uh his doctor's degree in theology, and I mean, he seemed to be a, I mean, at least able to, you know, systematize some doctrines. Yeah. Yes, yeah. at least. No, he was able to to write down to put into writings too, so we could you know at least have a look at you know what the beliefs were he held and yeah yeah um I want actually there was something I was going to say about him and it actually escapes me right now but um, uh, Hubmayer uh, would have had acquaintance with some of those early reformers in Zurich, Switzerland, that engaged with Zwingli himself. I believe Hubmayer actually uh, encountered Zwingli, and um, 
And in some ways, Hubmayer was orthodox in a lot of his views. Uh, he would have uh, obviously opposed Zwingli's view on soteriology when it comes to God's grace versus man's free will and salvation. Do you want to kind of touch on that a little bit? Yeah, uh, Hubmayer was actually at two of the disputes, disputations with uh, Drebel and and Mons and those in Zwingli there in Zurich. So, uh, uh, yeah, he was definitely involved in... In, in the early part of the movement there. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you also had another one that we wanted to uh, kind of uh, touch on. Uh, oh, now I actually remembered what I was going to bring up about him. Um, Hubmayer, a lot of uh, those... Baptists today that are engaging in um, some historical revision and trying to say that the Baptist movement today has its roots within Anabaptism, many of them would point to Hubmayer as as an early Baptist and not necessarily as an Anabaptist. Did you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, that is one thing. I mean, Hubmayer was the closest to being a Baptist. Yeah. The, there, there's a lot of things, you know, there, but I mean, it's it's still to to say he was the Baptist, you know, would I mean, it's it's a push. It was Anabaptist, and uh, yeah, yeah, and it, like we said, you know, the 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 first Baptist confession, you know, they clearly denied that the ties to the Anabaptists, and and like I said, you know, Hummer, he, you know, you you could follow his the. Theology, you could follow his thought, and and f- I mean, for the for the most part, it was uh, he was you know biblical, and and like I said, you know, we would disagree with his thought on free will, but yeah, when it comes to his yeah his view of uh, man's man's choice and salvation versus God's choice, um, that is one of the distinctives. Um, he, I don't believe uh, he held to, and we're going to talk about this here a little bit later, but um, the celestial flesh view, I don't believe he was one of those who held to it. At least we don't have any writings that he did. No, as, I mean, as far as I, I mean, I ha- I wasn't able to pull anything up that he would have uh, held to that. And, I mean, he was he was basically, basically orthodox to, to the point, you know, of, no, the free will he held to the, yeah, yeah, the view of libertarian free will. Yeah, and uh, that was one of, um, that was one of the distinguishing, uh, and also his view of, uh, Pado versus Credo baptism, um, or, um, Anabaptists. Uh, a lot of Anabaptists would have argued Anabaptist actually means to be rebaptized, and a lot of Anabaptists uh, didn't like that particular moniker because they didn't think the original baptism was valid in any way, so they would just have thought of themselves as just baptizers. But, but um, so another one that I wanted to touch on after Hubmere, did you have anything else on Hubmere you wanted to bring in? No, I was just going to say the, the whole Baptist, you know, the, the reason they were given the, the, bap, or the Anabaptist name was for rebaptism. Yes. And, you know, and, and prior they, uh, I mean, you had the, the Donatists were the only, really, the big movement who ever rebaptized. Yeah, and then you know there was you know looking back at history, you know that was they looked back, and you know they seen the you know the air. I mean it, that would have been ruled as heretics then, and so 
that was that was the big thing, you know, for the reformers and even the the Catholic Church was they wanted to make a distinction, you know, you know, you're rebaptizing and that was yeah. They saw it as a problem, so. Yeah. I you know, and if I'm not mistaken from some of the reading I've done up on the early Anabaptists, is many of them referred to the Donatists as um as, as Anabaptists as very similar to them. Yeah, they uh they uh in their line, you know, we all have to have our line that goes back to the apostles. So Yeah. They would actually put the put the Donatists in that line, yes. yeah, that that unbroken line, the same way as the Catholics try to promote. Uh, for those of you out there that aren't familiar with the Donatists, I want to briefly just make sure that uh, you guys know what we're talking about with the, with that. But uh, um, the Donatists were a group uh, in the early church that would have opposed Augustine. Um, there were there were those Christians in the early church that under heavy Roman persecution had had recanted and had abandoned the faith in order to avoid persecution. And uh, and there were bishops and priests who had done that. And the Donatists were opposed to allowing, once the persecution stopped, were opposed to allowing... Um, these lapsed Christians, uh, basically, uh, back into the fellowship of the church, um, and they also opposed the um, uh, the baptisms of of those uh, of people that had been baptized by those priests and bishops that had lapsed, and so they promoted rebaptizing them. And did you want to fill in anything on that? Well, yeah, I want to say that was that was the big that was the connection they seen between it was you know the Donatists had that's what they had done you know they had discredited a baptism you know based based on, upon the source based yeah. upon the source and they were making the connection you know they were they were well basically doing the same thing you know it was the source when it was done with the made it invalid so they I mean they had that. I would history. Yeah, I would say that they were uh, um, they were <laughs> it's all right. The camera's still lined up. So <laughs> uh, I would say that uh, even though they used um, that, I would say it was the Donatists did it for a completely different reason than what the Anabaptists did. In fact, the Donatists would have engaged in many of them would have engaged in infant baptism. Um, but they just considered baptism invalid for a different reason than what the Anabaptists did. Yeah, I mean, the, the Donatists had a completely different reason for doing it than what the Anabaptists, but, you know, what I was saying is, like, the Reformers, they they were just drawing, you know, that was where they were drawing from. That was what they went to, to, to you know, in history to see, you know, what had happened. Yeah, what, know, where else where, did this where happen? Else did, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, another individual that uh, we wanted to talk about a little bit was Hans Denk. Um, Hans Denk was also uh, an early Anabaptist that uh, was um, with the group um, that came out of uh, Austria and and uh, Germany and in that particular area. And um, uh, Denk actually uh, briefly associated himself with Munster. Um, and uh, recognized later that it was there was some error in that, but the thing that I found very interesting 
with reading some of Dink was how closely he was related to modern present-day groups like the Apostolic Reformation, uh, things like IHOP, um, and uh, with Bethel Church in like Northern California, Redding, California. Um, a lot of the views that Dank as an Anabaptist had is very similar to uh, the modern charismatic uh, and new revelation movement. It's it's just being repeated again. There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same thing. And uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on that, Kevin? Well, yes. I mean, Dink would have been one of the one of the the big names in the the spiritualist Anabaptist movement. I mean, you had you had a big part of the movement where I mean, mysticism and yes, and all that I'm trying to think who was the Hans Hut uh, yeah Hans Hut Hans Hut and Hans Dink both were I mean to some extent uh teaching universalism yes yeah and so there was the the thing that um Dink focused on a lot was he he would talk about the primacy of the Logos, the internal Logos, the internal word through the Holy Spirit over what they would refer to as the dead letter. Um, and that is exactly what is going on today, where the internal revelation of what they deem as being the Holy Spirit trumps the, the dead letter. Um, yeah, it does. I mean, it doesn't matter if it contradicts anything in the scripture it doesn't matter if it if they contradict themselves it's you know as long as they can say you know it's from the spirit and it gives them it gives, i mean who are you to question that? who are you to question them yeah and we just see that exact same thing um being repeated uh today and where they put down the text itself of scripture and those who um uh, engage in intense study of what the Word of God says and tries to use proper hermeneutics and methods of exegesis and coming up with what did God actually say. And then once, when, when, when we come to understand the truth of something that God has revealed and spoken to us about, that we actually hold to it with certainty. In fact, a lot of... Um, the the early Anabaptists and even uh, many of them in the Apostolic Reformation movement that's existing today, um, they would say that we can't necessarily be certain about anything in Scripture except for their claim belief that we can't be certain about anything in Scripture. That's the only thing that they're really certain about. And Kevin and I were talking about this earlier before we started the podcast. Is that is that uh, what I, what I brought out is that whenever anyone denies the perspicuity and the clarity of scripture when it comes to the the doctrines that are essential for us when it comes to salvation and things like that when we deny that those things be are clear and that that god's word is just not clear enough for us to know these things what we do is we don't the, the thing is it, it's not that we're getting away and we're saying that you know well you know we're we're human we err and, you know, we just we can't have, 
you know, we make mistakes, so we shouldn't be dogmatic about anything necessarily in Scripture. That's what what I heard MacArthur actually recently call the the humility hermeneutic. Um, and uh, what what they they're not doing is they're not getting away from the claim of certainty, though, because they're still holding that that particular doctrine itself is clear and certain that you can't have certainty about anything in Scripture. They say, well, that's certain and that's clear. But the Scripture itself is what's not certain and what's not clear. And it's really, it's not a position of humility whatsoever. Humility is to humble yourself before what God has revealed and what God has spoken. And it's not a dead letter. It's not a dead word. In fact, I want to bring up a text uh, in Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus was speaking to the Sadducees um, when they were uh, talking about... um, uh, marriage. They were questioning Jesus on marriage. Uh, Jesus actually told them, you err, you are wrong because you do not know the scripture. You you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? So Jesus held the scripture as being God's word being spoken to us. Uh, not the dead letter. And that, as we said, nothing new under the sun. The same thing that is happening uh, today with that happened back during the Reformation, and it happened among the Anabaptist groups. Yeah, I mean, the the main thing is as soon as you go to the inner word, then, then there is no... There is no guidance. I you mean, have no you, foundation. You have no foundation for anything, and and I mean, you've seen. Then you have Hoffman's next in line. You know, and that's where you get the celestial flesh started with Hoffman. Yep. And you know, you you have the prophets. You know, it starts with a Z. I can't think of the name right now. Um. The, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I can't yeah. remember the the names. But, but yeah, yeah. You, you had the prophets who yeah. were yeah. were uh, prophesying, you know, the immediate return or the imminent return of yeah. of Christ, and you know, they started with the city of Strasbourg, then it moved to Munster, and it it, it there was there was nothing, you know, nothing was tied down, or it was just, I mean, as long as you know, it was you could say, you know, the the Holy Spirit revealed revealed it to me you know and once you took out the bible there was nothing to tie anything down to yeah well i mean recently within the um the uh new apostolic reformation uh, a leader uh within that movement has 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 claimed that many of the prophecies given within this you know uh, 80 about 80 percent of them are inaccurate and they don't come true well that was exactly what happened with the early anabaptist movement uh uh, even Hoffman himself made prophecies that did not come true. And uh, there was others um, that made prophecies uh, there that they, they, for example, said that uh, was it uh, Strasbourg or Munster that was supposed to be the New Jerusalem? I don't remember which one, but they claimed that they would be the New Jerusalem. And obviously it's not the New Jerusalem. Well, yes, uh, it Hoffman said Strasbourg. And then when that didn't happened and they moved it to Moonster. So. <laughs> so New Jerusalem moved. Yeah, yeah. it was. But, <laughs> that, yeah, Hoffman it's, actually. False prophecies are always a moving target. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Hoffman, he uh, he got himself arrested. I mean, I guess, I don't know if he was 
pulling off John the Baptist move or what. You know, when Jesus came, John the Baptist, but he got himself arrested. That was part of his prophecy that he would be in jail for, I think, three and a half years, and then, you know, then Christ would return. Yeah, yeah. So, um, You briefly already mentioned the celestial flesh doctrine, and I wanted to actually hit on this. Um, I don't know exactly where celestial flesh started, but maybe you know. I believe Hoffman and um, and uh, si- Menno Simons both held to the celestial flesh view. Can you kind of fill in our our viewers and our listeners of what the celestial flesh view is? Kind of summarize it so they know what we're talking about. Well, yeah, uh, the the celestial flesh. It, it, the idea they it did start with Hoffman is the first I can find anything on it was Hoffman. Okay. And uh, it was it was the idea that Christ was human, but the his humanness didn't come from Mary. Uh, in the Martyr's Mirror, you can read a lot of, you know, stuff they wrote down in there. You know, a lot of those were uh, put to death for the idea, and they basically said that that Christ was born from Mary, not of Mary. Like, yes. Or like, out of Mary, yeah. but not, but not of Mary. Yeah. Well, yeah, th- that it was the Holy Spirit. Christ was, you know, he was, uh, his humanness came from heaven, and you know, and and Mary was just the one who carried him. It was he wasn't actually of the of Mary's flesh. Yeah. Um, the Belgic Confession in Article eighteen actually addresses the Anabaptists on this exact heresy. Uh, this is a well, well documented, very common heresy among the early Anabaptists. In Article eighteen of the Belgic Confession, it says, um, uh, "For since the soul had been lost as well as the body, Christ had to assume them both to save them both together." So, in other words, the body and the soul have both been lost due to the fall, and so Christ had to came, come and so, save them both. So he had both a human soul and a human nature and um and he took upon flesh philippians chapter 2 and uh so the belgic confession here in article 18 continues and says therefore we confess and then they say against the heresy of the anabaptists who deny that christ assumed human flesh from his mother that christ shared the very flesh and blood of uh children being the fruit of the loins of David according to the flesh, descended from David according to the flesh, and the fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary, Virgin Mary, born of a woman, the seed of David, the root of Jesse, descended from Judah. So, having descended from the Jews according to the flesh, descended from Abraham, having assumed uh, descent from Abraham and Sarah, and was made like his brothers and sisters, yet without sin, which is in Hebrews uh, 2.17 and 4.15. Um, but Scripture is very clear that Jesus was a descendant of David, um, that he was born of the seed of the woman, which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And so to deny that Jesus had human flesh as we are, because it, he became like us, like his brothers, those he came to redeem, which is in Hebrews. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, like in First John, John talks about, you know, those who deny that Christ came in, in the flesh. Yes. And it, you know, it, 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 well, like, Mental Simons, you know, he he didn't, he didn't, you know, he he said, you know, Christ was human, and uh, he didn't deny that. But 
he went to the doctrine of celestial flesh. I mean, once again, we we can't stop at at what they say. Look, you have to go past. And celestial flesh actually denied the humanity. While they while they always said you know he was human, he was of Mary. He had you know he was human as we are, but really he wasn't. He was a a divine creation. Yeah, not of flesh and blood as us. Well, and this this particular heresy, I believe, is a throwback to the Platonic Gnostic heresy of the early church, which we even see the New Testament writers addressing. You already mentioned First John four two, um, where John uh, points out that this is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus came. Uh, in a real body, that person is the Spirit of God. That's the NLT. I don't know why I read that translation, but let's try the ESV here. But this is, but this you know, the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And what John was addressing here was early forms of Gnosticism, even though they weren't fully materialized at that point. But uh, Gnostic view is that all of matter, all of material is evil. And and that all of spiritual, all that is spiritual is good. And so they denied the Gnostics, for example, would claim in a lot of the Gnostic, you know, early writings, pseudo gospels and stuff that when Jesus walked around, he didn't leave footprints, for example, because because uh, he didn't have human flesh. And so while I don't think that the early Anabaptists, Hoffman and Menno Simons were going to that degree, they were still denying I believe the humanity of Christ and that he was like his brothers and that he was born of the seed of the woman and that uh, he actually is a descendant of David. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like they were denying like completely. They, they had a humanity, but it wasn't the, the biblical humanity. I mean, it was, it was different from human flesh as we have. Yeah. And yeah, they said uh, their claim, you know, was that Christ had flesh, but it was a flesh from heaven that God simply, through the Holy Spirit, inserted into the womb of Mary. And then, but he was not of the seed of the woman um, himself. Yeah, which, I mean, there's so many passages that, that would, would deny this. Yeah, would deny that. Yeah. And I, I, just, I was just thinking of, uh, I think it's in Luke, where, it, you know, it says in, after Christ left the temple and you know he that he grew in stature and favor with god and man and with man yeah so and we have philippians chapter 2 where he humbled himself and he took upon human flesh um and was made in the likeness of men uh jesus christ our redeemer the one who came and saved us from our sins took upon a human nature this involves a human flesh a human soul um he uh joined himself with that in what we refer to as the hypostatic union. Jesus was fully divine, and he was fully man. He was not part man. He was not part God. He was fully God and fully man. The eternal Son of God decreed his interaction and his uh, incarnation into human history and time in order to redeem his people from their sins. And so this is an essential uh, doctrine which uh, I don't believe um, uh, falls into the category of adiaphora the, those things that are not essential I believe that this is something that's very important and uh, I think the New Testament would bring that out yeah I mean we we need to be very careful whenever we're going about 
you know, making the distinctions between air and and calling air air and calling heresy heresy. Yes. And I mean, as I mean, I don't think it could be any clearer. I mean, any time that the gospel is at stake is heresy, and any time anyone attacks, you know, the Trinity, or even you know the like this, if you attack the deity of Christ or even the humanity of Christ, the the person and work of Christ is. Yeah, that's where we need to start clarifying, just as as Paul did himself. So, Kevin, are you actually telling me that if if people don't sing hymns like we do at our church, that's that's not a heresy? See, I I I thought that was heretical. <laughs> I think that's error. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that, that, you would even classify that an error. <laughs> yeah, just an error. Oh, okay, just I, an error. Okay. I, don't, I don't think I would call it heresy. You wouldn't call that a heresy, okay? So, what about our discussions that we've had about uh, whether to use wine in communion or or Welsh's grape juice? Um, is that is that a heresy or is that an error? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> depends. That would be close to heresy. That would be pretty close to heresy. Yeah, you would. You'd, no, you'd I don't heard. think so. <laughs> yeah, we ha- we have to. You know, the one thing that um, is a tendency among I think a lot a lot of modern evangelicals is, um, and I've even seen them going away from this, but is that they hold Christianity that, well, if you're Trinitarian, uh, you know, least common denominator Christianity. Well, you know, the Catholics, they're Trinitarian. Um, You know, I would even be curious, a lot of the ones that don't want to seem to draw a line when it comes to the gospel, if they would even hold as oneness Pentecostalism, if they would say that that's... uh, if that's heretical, if that's outside of Orthodox Christianity, I, I'm not even sure if they would. In modern Christianity, I don't think it's not even the Trinity anymore. As long as you name the name of Christ, the, I think. The, I like the, what. Union. Yeah, you're you're in the camp. Um, I like what somebody recently said. What they do when it comes in reference to um, uh, modern Christianity is when somebody says, "Well, you know, it's just do they believe in Jesus." Uh, the very next question is just asking, well, who's Jesus? Yeah, who is Jesus? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the question. And and like to, today, I mean, the word heresy, to, I mean, for anybody to call anyone a heretic today is, I mean, that is just ungodly to even use the word. I mean, yeah. that's judgmental. It's yeah. condemning. Yeah, and they'll definitely judge you for using that. There's no doubt about it, yeah. Um, I'm actually trying to find a quote that I found on, oh, here we, I found it. Um, it was actually something I was going to uh, mention in last week's episode, but I I forgot, but this is kind of an opportune time. Um, and I found this on got questions, uh, article on postmodern postmodernism. And uh, this one states here, it says, this is from got questions says for those who espouse philosophical religious pluralism. There is no longer any heresy except perhaps the view that there are heresies. Um, That's really the only thing that a lot of modern Christianity even wants to uh, refer to as an actual heresy is, you know, if you actually call something a heresy. Now, one thing that we as uh, Reformed Christians sometimes have to hold ourselves back from is that we have sometimes a tendency to go a little bit the other way. We want to kind of call about everything a heresy that we can and, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think we need to be careful with that, but we need to stick to what does the Word of God use that distinguishes from true Christianity and not. And, and the Word of God actually has many places where it says that, 
you know, if 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 a person professes does not confess that Jesus is God, uh, for example, Jesus himself says that if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So obviously the deity of Christ is is an essential of the faith. Well, yeah, and I mean, Paul and anathematized, you know, the preaching of another gospel. I mean... Yes, absolutely. Like I said, you know, John, you know, the the those who deny, you know, Christ came in the, in the flesh. I think the Bible, the New Testament, gives us a, a pretty well an outline. I mean, we, we're kidding ourselves if we don't think we're all an heir somewhere. I mean... We I don't we just don't know where it's at. Yeah, yeah. The the thing though that we need to be careful um, with is to in our in our effort to be humble that we still allow God to speak to us through His Word and that He has spoken with clarity. And true humility comes by humbling ourselves before the Word of God, and um, instead of um, I, and I think it's a prideful position to say that, and it's a false position to say that God just hasn't spoken clearly enough about these doctrines when it comes to uh, the nature of God, what he has revealed to us about himself, and the nature of salvation. Um, God has clearly revealed these these doctrines, and I believe that we can hold to them as Christians with certainty and with uh, clarity. Yes, our humility needs to be that while we know that they're, I mean, I'm not completely sure. I'm sure that I'm in error on things, but I mean, we don't know. And, and our humility is to be that we do know that the scripture is truth. Yes. And, and if, you know, if, if, if my brother can show me from scripture where I err, but then, well, you know, then I change. That's where my humility is at. Well, it should be, it should be Luther's cry. When he was in trial, uh, when he was uh, uh, taking a trial, was it at Wartburg, um, where he where he said that unless you can show me that I err with testimony from Scripture or reasoning based upon Scripture, um, you know I will not recant, and that should be our position also when it comes to um, these particular topics, and uh, we believe that they are important and they are worthy of us standing upon them, being willing to even die for them if so necessary. But especially we can at least, you know, stand up and and have somebody maybe humiliate us a little bit because, you know, we're, we're, we're willing. But so much of um, uh, postmodern and modern-day Christianity doesn't want to say anything that would, you know, God forbid we actually, ugh, that we actually offend somebody. I mean, the gospel itself, uh, as Scripture tells us, is going to be offensive. So um, there are times, but we should needlessly offend people, but there are times the gospel will offend people, and they won't like it. Any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, I think today in evangelism, the seems like the main goal is to, to you know, tell everyone, you know, you know, hey, God loves you as a, he has a plan for your life. Has a wonderful what, plan for your life. Yeah. And and I mean, we read. I mean, Christ is all his trouble was was with what he was teaching. It was the gospel that that was offending the Pharisees. It was offending the Jews. Period. 
I mean, it, I mean, they weren't offended at Christ because of the miracles and because of the healing. It was, it was the gospel. It was what he was teaching that was offending them. Well, and they they knew he was the Messiah. He was just not the Messiah they expected, or the one they wanted. The one they wanted, absolutely. He did not give them uh, what they desired, and so they even even with knowing that he really was the Messiah, they willfully uh, rejected him. So. Um, anything else uh, you wanted to uh, note, Kevin, uh, before we uh, wrap up this podcast? Anything else you wanted to talk about with the uh, on our topic of the Anabaptists? I think that pretty well does it. Okay. Well, uh, thank you guys for uh, joining us today. Um, hopefully, uh, this was helpful to you. If any of you guys are out there that are Anabaptists today, we our intention is not to be offensive to you. Our encourage. You know, what we would want you to do is encourage you to open up your Bible, read it, compare it to the teachings of the Anabaptists and, and those particular groups, um, and uh, just compare it to the Word of God. Do that study yourself. Um, God has spoken to us. He has given us his Word, and this stuff is important. And uh, was there something, Kevin, you wanted to? Yeah, and not just the Anabaptists, the, the Baptists yeah. that— know the revisionist you know let let let's look at it let's be honest i mean they what is the truth let's go back to the truth we we don't need to revise history to to make our line you know follow our line some apostate line yeah and you know let's be honest with it remember the word of the word of god and and not just take you know Take you know separation of church and state. Oh yes, I agree with it. Let's let's look at what, what what the the belief behind that was. And 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 fundamentally, the most important thing is those things pertaining to the gospel itself. Um, that we are sinners. We um, are deserving of God's wrath and His justice against us for our willful sin against Him. And that uh, God uh, saves sinners like Kevin and I and like you. And uh, he saves by his grace alone. And I would encourage all of you out there, if you have not done so, to put your faith and your trust in Christ and him alone. And you will find him to be a perfect Savior. So thank you for joining us today. I hope this was of some benefit to you. And God willing, Deo Valente, we will be back with you next week. We hope to see you then. God bless. Don't you know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom? And through Adam's